from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, August 29th. I'm Marco Werman. Treating the rebel wounded in Syria is dangerous work. This volunteer doctor was constantly worried when she was there about being found out by the government. There's always an edge of insecurity. You always have to think, if you had to evacuate, which patients can be discharged? Who do you need to take with you? We'll hear her story. Also today, a controversial civil union in Brazil between a man and two women, plus North Korea's Paralympic debut, and why London is a home away from home for the NFL's Jacksonville Jaguars. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Turkey is urging the creation of a buffer zone inside Syria. That's a safe area where the United Nations could protect people displaced by the Syrian conflict. Turkey has a lot at stake in the matter. Some 80,000 Syrian refugees are already in Turkey, and UN officials say up to 5,000 more have crossed the border each day in recent weeks. The Turkish proposal for a buffer zone was quickly dismissed, though. In a rare TV interview today, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad called the idea impractical. Those refugees are fleeing a conflict that has killed an estimated 18,000 people since it began last year. Many thousands more have been wounded. And those who care for the injured in rebel-held areas take huge risks to do so. Anesthetist Rachel Craven of the Bristol Royal Infirmary in England used her holiday leave this year to go to Syria. She worked there for the relief group Doctors Without Borders, also known as Médecins Sans Frontières. For security reasons, she can't describe exactly where she treated patients. All I can really say is that we're in the the north of the country in a a rebel-held area and that we're working in a house that's been converted into a a hospital. But from from the outside, it just looks like a normal house. And remind us why the secrecy on where you were. We're we're there illegally. MSF, um, Doctors Without Borders, uh, contacted the Syrian government and uh, and did ask for permission to to work within the country, but, but that was refused. However, we felt that the, the needs within the country were such that we couldn't really accept that. Mm. Uh, it's something that Doctors Without Borders does very occasionally, maybe three times in the last 30 years. But in this case, they felt that it was necessary. So this hospital looks on the outside like a home. What's on the inside? How well equipped uh, was it? So on the inside, downstairs, there are reception rooms that have all been converted. So one is an operating theater. We have a resuscitation room, a recovery room. Uh, The kitchen has been converted into a sterilization area for all the surgical instruments. We have an emergency room in the courtyard. And then upstairs, the bedrooms have all been converted into wards. All the equipment has been smuggled in over the border. And it's basic equipment, but it's uh, very well suited to the environment, given the the problems of electricity supply. And it does allow us to, to really perform most types of surgery that are necessary in that context. 
The UN estimates the number of people who've died in the Syrian uprising to be over 20,000. Uh, there'd be many more injured. Were you worried about what you were getting into? And, and is what you saw at this hospital suggestive uh, of the casualty rate? The flow of patients uh, into the hospital would be very variable from day to day. Um, that was partly due to just what was happening. So if there was a battle locally, if there was shelling locally, then, then you would obviously get a, a big influx of casualties. There's no ambulance service or a very limited one. Um, most of the patients are arriving uh, you know, on a mattress on the, on the back of a pickup truck. So you can only imagine that, that perhaps a, quite a large proportion of people who might otherwise be saved are, are actually dying en route to facilities such as ours. You can't really plan um, because you, you don't know what you're going to have in the next few minutes. And there's always a, an edge of insecurity. Mm. Uh, you don't know, are you going to be able to stay there? You, know, you always have to think if, if you had to evacuate, which patients can be discharged? Who do you need to take with you? So, that's, so there's quite a different range of problems. And sometimes I gather it's not just logistics. A lot of Syrians ha have stopped going to hospitals, apparently. Why is that? There's a, a lot of fear that... Um, Certainly, if, if you go to one of the government hospitals and you have uh, injuries from either shelling or gunshot injuries, especially if you're a young man, you might be considered to be a rebel and then, you know, you could be in danger. Were you treating a mix of fighters and civilians? Yeah, I would say it was probably around about 50-50. You do sound like a doctor who, you know, has to get into these situations and has to remain calm and, and objective. But maybe you can just tell us about one case uh, one individual where you, you kind of stopped in your tracks? There was a, a young man who was brought into us. He'd, he'd come in in the back of a, a pickup truck. Um, it was late at night. He had been shot in the neck. The story we were told was that he'd been um, trying to escape from Aleppo uh, with his family. When he arrived, he was very distressed and, and semi-conscious because the, the gunshot to his neck had caused a lot of bleeding, which was swelling and, and pressing on his his airway so he was having a lot of problems with his breathing and he also had uh, unfortunately a, an injury to his c-spine from from the bullet so even though we were able to save his life from the point of view of his, his breathing you know he, he had a, an extremely severe injury we eventually managed to, to transfer him out of the country but you know he was there with his, his wife and a, a very young child and uh, you know you realize that the future for that family had really just been wiped out Dr. Craven, what would have happened to you and to this undercover hospital if it had been discovered? I mean, did Doctors Without Borders have a contingency plan for you? We had an evacuation plan. If we had been discovered, it's it's very hard to to know what would have happened or, or what would happen. And, I mean, you, you hope that you'll just be left alone. <laughs> but uh, you don't know. You know, the, the rumours on the ground are that hospitals are a target. You know, obviously, we're we're not taking any risks there, and we're uh, we're trying to keep extremely quiet about about the location of the hospital. I just want to know: while your colleagues go off on summer vacations and sit on beaches, why did you go to Syria? Why did you do this? For me personally, you know, I find it extremely rewarding and, and challenging. Whilst obviously there's very grim aspects to the job, there are also very positive aspects to it as well. So, you know, I find for me it, it adds quite a lot. Anesthetist Rachel Craven of the Bristol Royal Infirmary in England speaking about her work in Syria with Doctors Without Borders. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
Coming up tomorrow, independent filmmakers are rare in Syria. Now one of the most prominent has gone missing. All we know is that he was about to board a flight to Cairo from Damascus last week, but he didn't make the flight and his family doesn't know where he is. In Syria, that's usually a very ominous signal. The New Yorker's Lawrence Wright on the case of vanished Syrian filmmaker Orwa Narabia. That's tomorrow on The World. In 2004, Ukraine seemed to be a country on the verge of great change. It didn't have a civil war like Syria's, but it did have an uprising that was dubbed the Orange Revolution. Its goal was to rid Ukraine of its corrupt old communist guard and bring in democracy. One of the uprising's leaders was Yulia Tymoshenko. She went on to become the country's first female prime minister. But since August of last year, she's been in jail, convicted of abusing her public office. She claims she's being persecuted by her old guard political opponents now in power. But today, Ukraine's highest court rejected Tymoshenko's appeal. A judge read out the ruling, which upheld the seven-year prison sentence against the former prime minister. Tymoshenko's supporters in Kiev rallied after the ruling, shouting the word shame over and over. Tymoshenko also has supporters outside the country. The European Union has been critical of the ruling, just as Ukraine was hoping to further its case for EU integration. There's another event taking place in Kiev today that at first glance seems unrelated, but there is a connection. It's an art exhibit called The Sleeping Beauty Project. It's part social experiment, part political statement, as the artist Taras Politaiko likens Ukraine itself to a sleeping beauty. So, Taras, how is Ukraine like a sleeping beauty? Well, it has had like a difficult and even tragic history. And somehow, I think like the enduring kind of long patience. I mean, for example, now with like Tymoshenko is in jail, nobody is really doing anything. It's like a place of like apathy. Like it seems like nobody cares about politics because everybody's so disappointed about, you know, the bad outcome or the failure of Orange Revolution. Explain mm. the Sleeping Beauty Project, how it's a rumination on Ukrainian patients. The sleeping beauty is waiting, and waiting is type of patience. The other thing that I'm interested in is like taking the old archetypal narrative, which any fairy tale is, and making it real and, and seeing what happens. And so you go into this gallery. Tell us what you see. There is a sleeping beauty. The length of the performance is 15 days. So I've cast like five beauties. Each gets three days. And when you enter the space, it's like empty space. And there's this beautiful white bed. Everything's white. She's dressed in white and she's asleep. To make it simple, if you kiss her and she opens her eyes, like you marry her. But in order to get in... You have like, to marry her. Legally, you have to marry her if legally she Legally, you have to marry Anybody can come in, anybody over 18, which is like legal age in Ukraine, and single. So there's basically a contract and a statement. If you sign the statement, you're basically stating that like you're not going to kiss her, like you're just going to observe. If you're signing the contract, it means like you're like a potential kisser. And all the Sleeping Beauties are, are, are cool with that. Um, has anybody opened their eyes yet? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and how many people have gone through the gallery and, and kissed these Sleeping Beauties? I don't remember exactly, but the first, like I think she got more or less like over 20 kissers. What makes the situation, what the performance intense is the consequences are serious. I, I describe them in terms of roles, like the prince and the, and the beauty. The prince has to think twice because he doesn't know the essence of the beauty. He, he just sees the surface. And the beauty is 
it's opposite. The the beauty doesn't get to see the prince. She gets to feel intuitively. Well, exactly. And, uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, for you, what's the big surprise here? I mean, have you found yourself actually, you know, rooting for one of the one of the five women? I root for all of them because like the you know, they're really like romantic types, like the really romantic souls. The the nature of the project is it's it's a fairy tale. It's very gentle fairy tale. It's magical and and the kind of people it attracted are of that kind. You know they're very refined and gentle girls. You know and they're smart and beautiful. So they actually believe they want to find the true love. There was like one who just said like ah like I love kissing. I'll just like kiss away for three days. Like that's great <laughs> for me. It's a, it's a sensitive situation. I kept asking girls, so if the dude is not sensitive, he kisses for too long, what, what do you think? Should we like limit the kiss to maybe like five seconds and give like the security guard the timer? And the, the girls' consensus was, oh, what if it's nice? What if it's a nice kiss though? You know. So I, I <laughs> really when I asked them. So basically, we kind of like came up with this that they, if they don't like it. They just like lift their hand and then the security kicks in right away and I'm there wow. too. Everything's been great so far, but I had to push one guy slightly back because I think he kind of got too emotional and he touched her gently on the wrist. It's just no touching means no touching, right? Because if you start letting it happen, like where do you stop, right? So I had to, he was like mad at me because... He actually left the iPad on the bed, and and oh, eventually like, the the beauty told me that there was like money in it for her ticket to Amsterdam to visit him, and like his email address. Unintended consequences. Yeah, <laughs> so there's like a drama every day. Artist Taras Politaiko, his work called The Sleeping Beauty Project is at the National Art Museum of Ukraine. To see a video of The Sleeping Beauty Project, come to theworld.org. Taras, thank you very much. You're welcome. Still ahead, North Korea's one-man Paralympic squad on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. London's Wembley Stadium has seen some amazing football. Of course, we're talking football in the British sense, soccer. But starting next year, Wembley will also host American football's Jacksonville Jaguars. The NFL team has inked a deal to play one game per season in London between 2013 and 2016. It's not the first time the NFL has gone to London, but it is the first time one team has signed on to play there over multiple seasons. Mark Lamping is president of the Jacksonville Jaguars organization. He says the team is excited about the deal. There's no question having the opportunity to make a regular appearance in you know one of the world's great cities and one of the most uh, historic uh, stadiums will uh, do nothing but uh, elevate the awareness and the image of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and uh, that uh, clearly is a great benefit to us. How do the players feel about it with the, the extra travel and the time difference? Well, you know, it, the, the world has gotten a lot smaller. Uh, over the uh, you know the past uh, several decades, if you look at it from a travel standpoint, traveling from uh, the east coast uh, of the United States to the west coast is is not that different from traveling from the east coast to London. Mm. Are you excited? I mean, it's a, I am. It, it's, I'm a, it's a big change. You know, I'm, yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's not that often that you know you have the opportunity to play on a world stage. You know, obviously the events of the past thirty days and you know what happened with the Olympics in uh, London has has done nothing but 
you know, increase the image of London as being one of the world's greatest cities. And uh, for our franchise to have the opportunity to uh, make a regular appearance there, we're very excited about it, and uh, as are our fans here in the United States. Won't fans in Jacksonville get upset that, that a home game will, will now involve uh, two expensive days of travel in hotels? Well, it's, you know, I guess if you, if you only look at it in terms of uh, that particular game, you know, our fans really look at it from a much broader perspective. Uh, folks here in, in Jacksonville really view this as an opportunity to increase the awareness of the city of Jacksonville to increase the uh, tourism and provide some economic development opportunities. So uh, as it relates to just the single game, perhaps some, some may look at it as, uh, as uh, not the most positive development. But when you take a step back and look at the growth opportunities in tourism and economic development, it's, it's a clear winner. Mark, I know it's just one game per season, but, but is there a direct flight from Jacksonville to London right now? Uh, there is not. Uh, there obviously will be uh, charters that we'll be arranging to take the team to London, and uh, and uh, as well as uh, charters for our fans to make a trip there. But there are uh, there's frequent direct service from London into Atlanta, which is close to Jacksonville, as well as uh, uh, Orlando, Florida. So, you know, perhaps this is something that could that could grow in the future. But we don't we don't see uh, the lack of a direct connection today being an obstacle. NFL officials both here and in Europe have expressed hope that this will eventually lead to a London-based franchise. Would Jacksonville consider moving to London? You know what? Our focus right now is being as successful as we can be uh, here in Jacksonville. We do believe that by playing one game uh, in London for each of the next four years, that strengthens our franchise mm. here in Jacksonville. You know, If you look at what's transpired in the U.K. Uh, over the past number of years, it started with some preseason games, and now you're seeing uh, regular season games that count. There has been some discussion about... Uh, uh, adding a second game each year to be played in the UK, and you know, I think uh, the commissioner of the NFL has said it best. You know, if things continue on, uh, you know, a very, very positive course. Perhaps one day there could be a franchise uh, in London, but you know, that would just be speculation as it relates to the Jacksonville Jaguars at this point. Do you, Do you think it would be good for the game to have a U.S. football franchise in London? I think so, personally. You know, if you look at the growth of the game, American football has experienced tremendous growth uh, outside the United States, and you know, I think. If the logistics can be dealt with and if markets can be found that work for the NFL, uh, becoming a more worldwide game would be a tremendous development for the National Football League. Mark Lamping, president of the Jacksonville Jaguars NFL franchise. Thanks very much. Thank you. Time will decide if the NFL and the U.K. is a union made in heaven. Here's a story about a civil union in Brazil that sparked controversy there. It's not the concept of civil union that's causing a stir. It's the fact that this civil union involves three people, a man and two women. The three have been living together for three years and have a joint bank account, and that entitles them to certain family benefits, according to the notary in Sao Paulo State who approved the civil union designation in this case. The move has been denounced by religious groups and others. The three people in the case are not speaking to reporters. But the BBC's Jefferson Poff has been reporting on the story. Jefferson, is it known why these three people want a civil union in the first place? They've been living together for uh, three years, but they wanted to have certain rights assured. For instance, in case of death. So they've been you know, trying to make this union in a certain way recognized by the state. And is it legal? I mean, could courts in Brazil ultimately appeal this and quash the decision by the notary? As a matter of fact, uh, Brazil has been under you know, another controversy which has just ended last year, which was the same-sex civil unions between two men or two women. 
So the legal definition of a family in Brazil as of this uh, day is of uh, a couple, you know, a man or, or a woman, two men or two women. A three-person civil union is not legal as of now. However, the notary public who has approved this seems to think that the Supreme Court will uh, tend to have a, a similar ruling as they did with the same-sex uh, civil union. Mm. I'm sorry. So what's been the range of criticism from the public? I mean, uh, as we said, religious groups have been really angered by this. Yeah, the case has, uh, you know, sparked controversy within the country. Uh, religious groups tend to think that this has uh, distorted values and uh, morals. The interesting thing is that pressure groups, you know, as lawyers also in their, you know, uh, organizations tend to have a conservative point of view on this. They tend to think that courts will overrule this immediately. Could this whole thing just be uh, less political in reality than it is just a practical solution to, to living in Brazil today? You mean as a, as a living arrangement between yeah. three people? Right. Some people who have uh, looked at this in a more analytical way tend to think that once this controversy is over, it could be more of a practical solution, as you said, in terms of... Um, legal practicalities or assets, you know, if they buy a car together or if they have a house together or if uh, one of the three people, you know, uh, leaves this relationship, then, you know, if they have debts together, for instance. What are the legal benefits of three people entering into a civil union together? Well, you know, as of now in Brazil, in the law, some of the benefits of civil unions would be to be, you know, included in a health insurance, for instance, if one of these three people has a job and uh, they're entitled to a health care plan, then they could include the other ones as dependents. Or let's say if they have uh, a life insurance, then the other ones would have, you know, the money once this person dies. Benefits like that, and also in the eyes of the law, they will have uh, benefits, for instance, uh, social security benefits. And this is what critics are, you know, really uh, saying that it is outrageous in a way that once they try to have these benefits, for instance, if they are denied, they will have to go to court and appeal. So they tend to think that it will be overruled. It's certainly an unusual situation. The BBC's Jefferson Puff speaking with us from Sao Paulo. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, ahead on the world enforcing the law on bilingual ballots. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you think every American citizen should speak English or not, those are very valid points. But the bottom line is the law is the law. And later, why gamers in Iran are now blocked from playing World of Warcraft. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Paralympic Games kicked off today in London. These will be the biggest Paralympics since the first Games were held in Britain 64 years ago. Swimmer Kate Gray competed for Great Britain at the Paralympics in Beijing four years ago. London is going to be even bigger this time. There's two and a half million tickets been sold, and in Beijing there was only 150,000, and yet that still seemed like a huge amount of people at the time. So I think it's just going to be an incredible experience for the athletes themselves. Fifteen nations are making their Paralympic debut in London. That includes North Korea, which has just one athlete at these games, a swimmer. Jason Struther has more from Seoul. Rimju Song is North Korea's only athlete in the 2012 Paralympics. The 16-year-old lost his left arm and foot in an accident when he was a kid. He's slated to compete in the 50-meter freestyle swim. Rim has come a long way, says Pastor Kwak Su Kwang. His charity Green Tree works on behalf of the disabled in North Korea and helps support the athletes training in Beijing. He didn't even know how to swim before he came to China this spring. We taught him how, and then he made the Paralympic qualifier in Germany. Kwok says Green Tree helped start North Korea's disabled sports program from the ground up. They brought in wheelchairs and exercise equipment for the athletes. He says Pyongyang is very supportive of the Paralympic team. That's not the North Korean government that Ji Sung Ho says he remembers. Ji is a 30-year-old defector who, like athlete Rim Ju Song, had both his left hand and foot amputated. I was pleasantly surprised to hear they joined the games, but I really don't expect much to come out of it. People who aren't even disabled in North Korea still have so many problems. It's not going to really benefit the disabled overall. Ji defected in 2006 and might be the only North Korean refugee to make the difficult journey to Seoul with such severe physical limitations. He now wears prosthetic limbs. But before he came to South Korea, Ji crossed back and forth between North Korea and China in search of food. But one time, he was caught by border guards. They tortured me even worse than other escapees because they said I brought shame onto North Korea. The government doesn't want the outside world to see disabled people begging for food. So the police really beat me and told me that a person with only one foot should not leave home. Ji's allegations are just some of the concerns that human rights groups have about North Korea's treatment of the disabled. The UN said in a 2006 report that the North locks up physically and mentally disabled residents and kicks them out of Pyongyang. Lee Sok-young is director of Free North Korea Radio, a broadcaster staffed by defectors in Seoul. He says he's heard even worse stories about what happens to people with disabilities. The government forbids disabled children to live in Pyongyang, he says. So I've heard that some families kill their children rather than sending them outside of the capital. Lee says given its human rights record, North Korea should not have been permitted to compete in the Paralympics. Pastor Kwok of Green Tree says he hasn't seen any evidence that these allegations are true. He says conditions for the disabled in North Korea are improving, and the athletics program is proof of that. But there's still a stigma that needs to be overcome. A few years ago, there wasn't even a word for disabled in North Korea. People just called them retarded or other bad things. Families are ashamed. They want to hide their children, and they don't let them go outside. Frankly, it wasn't much different here in South Korea that long ago either. Disabled defector Ji Sung Ho says that's nonsense. 
Life in the South, he says, is like heaven compared to what he went through back home. He says the biggest challenges here in the South are learning how to type on a computer and passing his driver's license test. He says the North Korean athlete in the Paralympics is just being used by the government as a propaganda tool. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. Regardless of which country an athlete competes for, training for the Paralympics takes effort and money. North Korean swimmer Rim Ju Song, for example, is being funded by the British charity Care for Children. Care for Children usually works with Asian governments to develop their foster care systems. The organization had been doing that with the Chinese government when it was approached by North Korea, looking for help. Soon enough, Care for Children executive director Robert Glover and his team were en route to Pyongyang, which eventually led to supporting North Korea's Paralympics program. I always remember in the early days we had a table tennis match and I think we were two one up and we had our best Chinese girl coming on and I had to whisper into her ear, I think you better throw this one. <laughs> uh, so we made sure that we ended up with a 2-2 and everyone was happy. Asia's all about relationships and building relationships and so when they raised the idea about the Paralympics, we just thought, wow, we got to do this. Mm, so it's kind of a new iteration of ping pong diplomacy. Absolutely. And it's exciting because, I mean, initially they were talking about four athletes coming to London. You know, we thought that was pretty exciting given the numbers that South Korea were sending and and China. And then when it went down to one that qualified well, we thought, yeah, this is really what we've got to do. Paralympics is all about inclusion, Mm. inclusion of um, people with disabilities. And I just felt this is a great way to bring some people from North Korea into the world scene and, and the first time they've ever been to the Paralympics. So it's, it's got to be a win for everybody. We just heard in uh, the story from Jason Struther a moment ago that one broadcaster in North Korea says disabled children are not even allowed to live in Pyongyang. What do you know about North Korea's reaction to the whole idea of their sending an athlete to the Paralympics? Unfortunately, Marco, very little since going in last December. My uh, limited connections have been, you know, with meeting people in Beijing but certainly while we were in um, in North Korea, we did see people with disabilities and we did see the way they were treated. And I think there were lots of surprising things, you know, in all aspects of the spectrum of traveling around North Korea and seeing maybe not what you would expect. So North Korea has sent a delegation now to the Paralympics, a group of 24 people going to the UK, uh, apparently. That, that's a big retinue for just one athlete. Is, is the charity funding the whole delegation or just RIM? We're funding the whole delegation and the reason that is it's not to do with North Korea, it's to do with the the officials and they have to have, you know, doctors and physiotherapists, they have to have someone who knows the rules, Wow. they have to have someone who carries the flag, they have to have officials attend the official opening. So, you know, the specifications set by the World Paralympics, you know, on each country rather than, you know, a delegation just coming for the sake of it. So I think all 24 are necessary, but we're more than happy to um, reach out to that group and bring them into London. And they're having a great time. Yeah. Sounds like the kind of staff are a celebrity, though. This must be uh, a great thing for Rim Song to experience all this. I think so. But my initiative for this whole thing really has been around the humility. And there's a lot of humble people in, in North Korea. And uh, this group, I don't think, is claiming to be a stars or anything. They just want to, they're very patriotic and they want to compete and they want to be part of this. But um, I think uh, that's more their motivation than looking at stardom. Now, I understand you haven't met Rim Song in person yet. When will you be introduced? So um, Monday night, we're having a 
dinner in celebration at the Oxford and Cambridge Club in Pall Mall, London. Mm. And we've got members of House of Lords and House of Commons coming to welcome the delegation. That's where I shall see him at the dinner and following on from that, um, be cheering him on in the poolside to see him hopefully do well in the 50-metre sprint. This is a big deal. You must be really thrilled. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I just think it's a fantastic story and uh, it doesn't matter where he comes, you know, as long as he's there competing. That's our aim. We wanted to see him come into the the whole World Olympics and I, I think that's really important. Go Rimju Song. Robert Glover, the executive director of UK-based charity Care for Children. Thank you so much. Thank you. When Americans go to the polls this November, millions will be voting in languages other than English. Federal law requires bilingual ballots when 5% of a jurisdiction's population doesn't, quote, understand English adequately enough to participate in the electoral process, end quote. That has been the law since 1975. But many counties and states don't comply. The world's Jason Margolis has more. Philip Van moved to the United States from Vietnam as a political refugee in 1979. Van grew up speaking Chinese and Vietnamese. Six years after he arrived here, Van had to demonstrate some English proficiency to become an American citizen. But voting in this new language wasn't so easy. Sure, he could choose between two candidates, but deciphering propositions and bond measures... That was tough. I have taken a lot of time to, to read it, and then I've checked with the people. Well, we, we need to make more clear to understand what that's uh, good for and what's the bad thing about that. So we have taken a lot of time. Van says many new Americans are afraid to vote in English, afraid they'll make a mistake. Van lives in San Francisco, which now offers trilingual ballots in English, Chinese, and Spanish easier for Van to vote now? Yes, because a lot of people, even though they are well-educated, they are engineers, they are doctors, but they, for those new immigrants, maybe they are not quite understand about the political stuff. When multilingual ballots are offered, more people vote. Eight years ago, San Diego County began providing Vietnamese voting assistance. The results were immediate and dramatic, says Carlo de la Cruz with the Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco. Voter registration for the Vietnamese community increased by 30 percent. De la Cruz says bilingual ballots are crucial today as the U.S. becomes more diverse. Nationwide, one in three Asian Americans struggle with English. And that means that over 30 percent of our population needs some kind of assistance when it comes to being able to navigate our democracy and the political system. But not everybody thinks American voters should get this assistance. At a Republican primary debate this past January in Florida, Newt Gingrich said ballots should only be in English. Mitt Romney then said, I think Speaker Gingrich is right. Look, English is the language of this nation. People need to learn English to be able to be successful. They get great jobs. We don't want to have people limited in their capacity to achieve the American dream because they don't speak English. Six years ago, Congress reauthorized the language provision of the Voting Rights Act. A group of conservative Republicans mounted a campaign to stop it from happening. But the measure easily passed the Republican-led Congress and was signed into law by George W. Bush. Bruce Adelson, a former senior attorney with the Justice Department, says this ship has sailed. Whether you agree with it or not, whether you think every American citizen should speak English or not, those are very valid points. But the bottom line is the law is the law. This law has been tested, evaluated, challenged. It's withstood all of them. The law might be the law, but that doesn't mean all jurisdictions comply. 
In the past decade, the Justice Department has filed complaints against 35 cities and counties for violating election language provisions. These cases can be very expensive to litigate and to deal with, and I always advise election officials it's much better to comply voluntarily than to get the dreaded call, letter, or email from the Department of Justice from my old friend saying, essentially, we're going to come to visit you because we think you're violating federal law. But if voting jurisdictions know this, why then do they violate the law? Just across the bay from San Francisco, Alameda County violated the language provision of the Voting Rights Act last year. The county has a large immigrant population and is required to provide language assistance in four languages, Spanish, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Tagalog, the major language spoken in the Philippines. County officials say they weren't thumbing their noses at the law. Cynthia Cornejo, the deputy registrar for Alameda County, says the county was required to provide about 1,000 bilingual poll workers, again in four languages, for the June primary. We assessed probably close to maybe 2,200 people just to see if they could read, speak, write the language. Then we had to do an enormous outreach effort all the way almost until the week before the election and try and hit our numbers and then train them also. In June, Alameda County again failed to meet their legal obligations for Chinese and Tagalog poll workers. Cornejo says they're scrambling to cover 785 polling stations, and that's not just for federal elections. Odd number years are no longer a lull. (laughs) We could have anywhere from two to six elections on any given year. Groups like the Asian Law Caucus recognize the strains on Alameda County, but they're not letting election officials off the hook just for trying. Again, Carlo de la Cruz. Because potentially it means the disenfranchisement of hundreds of thousands of voters within Alameda County. Across the nation, 247 other jurisdictions in 25 states will also be required to provide language voting assistance this November. That covers 19 million Americans who could use help voting in a language other than English. For The World... I'm Jason Margolis, San Francisco. We have more coverage of the 2012 election, including a look at Paul Ryan's foreign policy views at theworld.org. Here's a geo-quiz with a virtual twist. We're looking for a mythical place. It's a continent located in the south of a fictional world called Azeroth. You might have heard of it as the World of Warcraft. That's a hugely popular online game of survival that usually sounds something like this. World of Warcraft is chock full of blood and gore and strategy. Millions of users in the real world play the game as often as they can. Now, about that continent in Azeroth, it's said to be shrouded by a magical mist. Its inhabitants were carried there on the back of a great turtle. And mythical or not, the place is now officially off-limits to online gamers in Iran. That's a result of tough U.S. trade sanctions against Iran. We'll have more on that when we name the mythical World of Warcraft continent in just a bit. This is PRI. 
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the investment firm of Raymond James, Wealth Management, Bank, and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, but right now we're talking about the world of Warcraft. The popular online games creator Blizzard Entertainment is set to release a new installment next month. Its fictional dungeons and battlegrounds are set on the fictional continent of Pandaria, which is the answer to our geo-quiz. That new installment of the game won't be making it to Iran, though. Gamers there have been complaining that they can no longer access the World of Warcraft online. This week, Blizzard Entertainment said it has indeed restricted access to the game in Iran. The company said U.S. trade restrictions and sanctions prohibit doing business with residents of certain nations, including Iran. The sanctions are aimed at Iran's government, part of Washington's long-running efforts to pressure Iran to stop its nuclear program. This is a direct result of United States sanctions policies, and this is an example of how our policies are hurting the wrong people. Jamal Abdi is with the National Iranian American Council in Washington. Our policies are hurting ordinary Iranians and not the Iranian government whose behavior we're trying to change. It could be something that we think is trivial like World of Warcraft, but this is a much bigger problem. Every facet of life in Iran is now being impacted by United States policies, and it's having a very negative effect on the Iranian people who largely are our friends. By the way, Warcraft fans in Cuba, Libya, North Korea, and Syria are in the same boat. U.S. trade sanctions mean they're all restricted from playing in the misty world of Pandaria. Finally today, we're going to hear about a British band rediscovering life years after its members called to quits. Nosferatu D2. Great name, right? It's from the London suburb of Croydon. The musicians put down their instruments in 2007, and that should have been the end. But it wasn't, thanks to one fan who took it upon himself to release their album. The world's Brendan Maddox has this story. Croydon, just south of London, is a type of area that metropolitan Americans are painfully familiar with. It's not quite London, just like Queens is not quite Manhattan, or Oakland is not quite San Francisco. That is to say, it's an overbuilt suburb. It is grayness. If there was, like, a fast food abyss, I think it would be Croydon. Jamie Halliday runs the South London independent record label Audio Antihero. He grew up in Croydon, where he first heard Nosferatu D2, a band whose gloomy lyrics about their mutual hometown caught his ear. You could burn down my hometown. Don't care to be quiet, it's just a forest of KFC, Starbucks and Mackie D's, fast rate cash machines, just yated liners in between, there's lorry load of broken things, half digested chicken wings, and left up turned rods, and let's just pack it in, start again, throw away your autographs of people you don't care about. Andy Peters, Andy Crane, they're all the same, they're all the same. This is one of Nosferatu D2's standout tracks, Springsteen. If you have difficulty understanding the words, I don't blame you. Lyricist Ben Parker's rapid-fire verbosity can be a bit of a challenge. But he's basically saying that you could burn down Croydon and he wouldn't care. My dad had a Bruce Springsteen album, which has got My Hometown on it. But it started off as a sample of that, and then that gradually went, which is why it was called Springsteen. It was like comparing my thoughts to Croydon. I could never have this idealized view of it in the same way that Springsteen seems to be having in my hometown. The album is titled We're Gonna Walk Around the City with Our Headphones On to Block Out the Noise. It's a dire, heavy record with downcast lyrics by Ben and manic drumming from his brother Adam. The music has a distinct, underground, non-commercial appeal. 
Parker believes that life should influence the music you make, not the other way around. It's inherently quite a strange thing to be doing as a job, I think. I'd find it very odd if that was my living, was writing and performing songs. Maybe there's a side of that. Maybe there's an angry side in the Nosferatu uh, V2 that is aware, you know, like there's the Colonel Parker song. And that's almost me coming to terms with the fact I'm never going to be Elvis. I get too self-conscious. I get too self-conscious. We said as long as it was fun, then we'd do it. And then if it stopped being fun, then we'd stop doing it. I think I realised how angry we were and how I almost had to put on this angry persona to play the gigs with Nosferatu D2. The angry persona was his own creation, but after two years, Ben couldn't keep it up any longer. The brothers ended Nosferatu D2 in 2007. Talk about it, that's enough. Let's go outside and feel alone. Memory of Nosferatu D2 would have faded with the handful of people who saw them at cheap bars if it weren't for Jamie Halliday. The story of Nosferatu D2 is closely intertwined with that of Audio Antihero. Well, that's kind of what you do. Like, you finish, you finish university and you, you, know, you can't get a job, so you end up doing internships at mean-spirited record labels and things like that, and it kind of fills you with a, a DIY independence dream. Halliday founded the label in 2009 with the sole purpose of releasing We're Gonna Walk Around This City. You kind of figure when you're doing things out of your bedroom on money that should be paid back with your student loan that if you can only release one album, what would it be? Because you probably will only get to do it once. And so I thought if I could only do one album, it would be Nosferatu D2's album. Indie publications praised the release for its honest and depressed sound. And some have credited Nosferatu D2 for being at the forefront of UK music's current introspective turn, tinging everything from the local punk scene to pop stars like Adele. We play the power of love where Frankie goes to Hollywood a thousand times tonight. And we're drinking till we feel sick, then we'll be sick. Ben Parker keeps making music as Superman Revenge Squad with his brother Adam on drums. Of course, he still keeps his day job. A free release of their last show as Nosferatu D2 is due out next month. Jamie Halliday and Audio Antihero have overcome their initial status as specialists in commercial suicide and have released over a dozen records as of their third anniversary in July. For The World, I'm Brendan Maddox. You've got so much to answer Nosferatu D2 play us out today. You can stream their one and only album for free at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.